Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we explore the life of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, one of India's revered figures, with author Sashi Tarur. Tarur's biography gives fresh insights into Ambedkar's life and legacy, highlighting the hurdles he overcame in a society that stigmatised his community. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, discover how Ambedkar's unwavering dedication to crafted a visionary constitution that enshrined individual rights and social justice in India. Thank you. Um, namaskaram, sastrikal, salam Good afternoon to all of you for being here uh, in this wonderful chamber. And now we've officially been recognized by the bells outside. That is our start time, it seems. Uh, we are here to, of course, talk about uh, this wonderful book. Uh, but let me please introduce, well, I guess I'll introduce myself. My name's Saeed Khan. Uh, my pleasure to uh, be in conversation with Shashi Tharoor. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a background for you, for those of you familiar with the old show, This Is Your Life. Um, this is going to be part of your life. <laughs> um, member of Congress from Atiru Vanathapuram. And by the way, I stood in front of the mirror for two hours trying to work on that. Um, yeah, you It'll come one day. You could have gone for somewhere early, uh, easier, but you know, like Kochi but maybe in the next election. Um, <laughs> former Under Secretary General of the United States, columnist, author of five books of fiction and uh, two illustrated books and then 19 books of nonfiction. Uh, received his PhD from the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. At the age of 22, uh, in 1978, still the youngest person to be conferred with a doctorate from Tufts. And as I recall, your PhD dissertation is now required reading for every introductory course in the undergraduate level at Tufts. Oh, really? That I didn't even know myself. Thank you. I'm That's because someone's <laughs> taking the royalties from you and you're I not receiving so. them. Yeah. Uh, but an, an amazing uh, achievement uh, to, uh, if you understand in the American system at 22, uh, the big milestone is usually people are uh, finishing up their undergraduate degree and have one year of legal drinking under their belt. <laughs> so uh, quite remarkable. I actually use some really obscure provisions of the, of, the, of the school involving submitting academic petitions. I did have very good grades and I managed to short circuit the process. The result of my doing this however, is they've abolished all those provisions. So no one is going to be able to short circuit the procedures as much as I do. So this would be the Tahrur rule, which ends with Tahrur. <laughs> probably. Excellent. <laughs> Some of you probably are uh, more familiar with his uh, Oxford Union speech in 2015, uh, particularly the uh, very shocking statistic and sobering one about uh, the British uh, pilfering uh, $45 trillion from India uh, throughout its colonial project. That uh, speech uh, has been viewed 10 million times on just simply one website. So uh, uh, Shashi is achieving Taylor Swift numbers uh, of, uh, of aplomb, which I guess is now the gold standard. So I suppose it must yes, be. And goals for you. Um, the book is B.R. Ambedkar, the man who gave hope to India's dispossessed. Now, Shashi talks about the fact that in a 2012 poll uh, of the greatest Indians of all time, uh, Ambedkar actually placed number one, uh, ahead of Gandhi, ahead of Nehru, uh, ahead of uh, Sachin Tendulkar. <laughs> and remember, these polls are always finicky. I remember seeing one poll in the BBC of the greatest actor of all time, and uh, the winner was Govinda. <laughs> over even Olivier, who came in a distant second. Uh, but I think that there is uh, merit for Ambedkar to uh, have uh, that particular uh, status. But my question for you is, why do you think now Ambedkar has uh, perhaps become rediscovered? You know, it's actually quite remarkable. And in fact, while we were sitting down, Said couldn't help observing that the audience was overwhelmingly from the subcontinent or from India. And that's partially because it's there that Ambedkar is truly, uh, has hit the, st the stratospheric levels of recognition 
and popularity, but I can't think of any other figure, certainly in Indian public life, whose reputation has grown so much uh, since his death, uh, whereas other reputations in some ways have declined. If you were to draw uh, graphs of, say, Jawaharlal Nehru's reputation from his death to today, and Ambedkar's, you'd find two absolutely contrasting lines. Uh, Ambedkar died a controversial man with as many enemies as he had friends. He had actually uh, lost more elections than he had won. Uh, and at the same time, um, he didn't mind because he's not somebody who went out to cultivate popularity. Uh, he was somebody who you know, believed in, in what he believed in and, and made sure that people were left in no doubt about his convictions. And at the same time, he didn't suffer fools gladly. So he, he was not going to be popular in his own lifetime. But I began my book, he died at the age of 65 in 1956, and I began my book 65 years later. And I sort of was able to see this extraordinary transformation uh, in the Indian context. A man who, as I said, was so frequently criticized, attacked, reviled, and so on. Today, there is no political party, and I mean that, none, that will say a negative word about him. Uh, he, uh, everyone is trying to appropriate him, including various political tendencies to which he was opposed in his lifetime and which reviled him in theirs and in, in, you know, during when he was alive. And so all of these things have happened. There are, it is said, more statues to him in India, statues and busts, than to any other Indian, with the possible exception of Mahatma Gandhi, where no one's really counted every single bus in every village. But that's the kind of popularity. And every political party uh, wants to trip over each other to honor him and his life and his memory. His birthday now has become a gigantic celebration. Gandhiji's birthday is marked one day and, and usually remembered, but the poor man shared that birthday with another prime minister, with a, with a later uh, political figure, Prime Minister Shastri. Uh, but um, in the case of, uh, of Ambedkar, the celebrations usually go on for at least a week. Uh, and, and now they're extending to foreign countries where the Indian diaspora has taken his message. So he really has grown enormously, enormously, uh, not just in stature, but in unchallengeability. There's kind of a, a sainthood that has been confirmed, conferred upon him, which in his lifetime, most people would have considered a, an impossible prospect. So your book actually, though, is not a hagiography. No. I mean, it would be much more within the area of, of, of biography. And uh, I was I, trying I, to be true to his own spirit. He's not somebody who would want it to be deified. He actually had said, the one thing he detests is the Hindu practice of bhakti, of worship. And he said, you know, bhakti in religion is up to you, but uh, bhakti in politics would be an utter disaster. Right, yeah. We'll get into the, the issue of uh, how he felt with Hinduism and really how I think sort of a Hindu establishment uh, felt about him. So here's a man who's uh, known in various circles for his achievements. Um, father of the Indian constitution, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, the, uh, the, the sort of uh, analogy that you make to the American context on that. A historian, uh, an, uh, an economist, uh, was he an independence movement leader? Was he? Was he an independence movement leader? Would you put him in that category? It's a difficult question to answer. Yes, in terms of the time frame that he was active in, he was very much part of that entire process. Uh, he was, for example, a very influential voice in the two roundtable conferences that the British convened in London in 1930, 31. Uh, he, he was, in every respect, therefore, a formidable figure of that independence generation. But you could argue that he would not be considered amongst the names um, of those who fought for freedom. For instance, he never went to jail. And he essentially would ask the question, freedom for whom? He said, if well, what we're going to create as a result of the freedom movement is a continuation of the dominance of the Hindu upper caste, now not just over Hindu society, but of the entire country, then why, is that, why should that be my priority? For me, my priority is ensuring that my own people, that is the so-called, well, there are many terms and we can talk about that too, uh, but the so-called depressed classes for much of his adult life, uh, that they get rights and, and more than rights, get opportunities to live decent lives. And for him, that was the bigger priority. And what's interesting, it not only put him ap apart from the sort of classic nationalist movement, the figures we all know of, Gandhi, Nehru, and others who spent large number of years in jail fighting the, the British. The ones who made the movie. <laughs> and the ones who made the movie, which, as we've discussed, Ambedkar is not even a character in. Ambedkar and Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose don't appear in, um, in that at all, and that's partially because um, 
they're not seen as, as key to um, uh, the story of Gandhi's life, whereas in fact both were in many ways um, reacting to Gandhi and Gandhiism in ways that would have been very illuminating in a, in a, in a broader canvas if they wanted to, to talk about uh, Gandhi's life differently. But that was a hagiography, and of course, uh, Ambedkar would have had you know, very little good to say about a hagiography like that. But anyway, so Ambedkar did all of this stuff. And um, he was attacked, for example, in a, in, a, in, a, in a famous book by the BJP politician and minister Arun Shuri called Worshipping False Gods, uh, who spent 770 pages in a philippic against Ambedkar for having collaborated with the British uh, rather than having supported the freedom movement. He actually served on the Viceroy's Executive Council, which was kind of the cabinet that ruled India, uh, at a time when uh, Gandhi, Nehru, the whole lot of them, Maulana Azad, all of them were in jail. And that was something which uh, he hasn't entirely been forgiven for by some. But I don't think he'd be apologetic. He tried to improve the lives of people through the opportunities he had through office. And he saw co collaborating with the British or cooperating with the British as a means to a larger end, which distanced him, him curiously enough from the communists even. The communists were not always part of the freedom movement. They went through phases of supporting the Brits, but during a period when, um, when they were uh, sort of anxious to get rid of the Brits and have nationalism. Uh, EMS Nambudripa, the famous communist leader said, why does Ambedkar put the trivial issue of Harijan uplift. Harijan was the slightly condescending term, children of God, that was being used for the Dalits, as we now call them, or the depressed class of the so-called untouchables. Uh, why does he put that before independence? And, and, and I think Ambedkar was unapologetic about that. So you actually put an, a disclaimer in your book um, uh, in the beginning. And I, by the way, I didn't stop at the beginning. I kept going. <laughs> uh, and thank you for not having it be 770 pages. Um, as this the is other, as the other book. tailored for the TikTok generation, <laughs> I promise you. We, we, of which I'm 220. Not, of which I'm not one, but thank you. Um, but, but this idea then about terminology, and in the book you, you describe that each of these terms can be problematic. So we've got untouchable, we've got, as you mentioned, Harijan, we've got Dalit, we've got depressed classes, we've got scheduled uh, uh, Class. classes. Actually, uh, Ambedkar experimented with a lot of terms. The official British term when Ambedkar first came into public life was depressed classes, which sounds pretty depressing as a term itself. Um, Ambedkar, when he first uh, uh, brought out a publication to advance Dalit issues, he called it Mook Nayak. Mook means silent. And the leader of the voiceless was the, was the title of his publication. Then he tried Bahishkru, which means excluded. So he wanted to be the voice of those who've been excluded from Indian society. Uh, he never obviously took to Harijan, uh, which was Mahatma Gandhi's coinage. Um, basically, we're all children of God, so what's so special? Why, why do you want to apply this label only to my community? And, and indeed, that, that rejection by the Dalits of the term Harijan is widespread. And finally, well after Ambedkar had passed away in 56, sometime in the late 60s, Dalits came into vogue. But in the meantime, a more bureaucratic terminology had been invented because in the 1935 Government of India Act, the various Dalit castes and subcastes had been listed in a schedule attached to the Government of India Act, and subsequently the same schedule was attached to the Indian Constitution. And that meant that uh, they were called the scheduled castes. And by the way, they're also the Aboriginal people, the Adivasis, who are called the scheduled tribes, and they're also listed in, in a schedule attached to the Constitution. So scheduled castes and tribes is now the, the so-called neutral term, Dalit was briefly sort of, you know, a, a, a bold term to use because it was associated with fairly radical members of the Antarctica, Dalit Panthers and so on, like the Black Panthers in America. But now it's really the accepted term, and most people in India would speak about, about Dalits. And in fact, there's even a column written by a Dalit writer in the Indian Express every Sunday which calls itself Dalitality. So there you have a new English word that... Uh, you may, you may need to add to your vocabulary. Anyone here from the Oxford English Dictionary? <laughs> um, please speak yeah, up. we should send it to um, them. Well, well, I mean, this, uh, and we'll talk about the Adivasi because, I mean, I think you, you point out, especially in the second half of, uh, of the book, um, some, of the, some of the issues with that. So tell us a little bit about his background. I mean, he, um, to say that he came from modest uh, background uh, would be a, a euphemism. Yeah, I mean, he was the 14th and last child of, a, of a, a subedar in the Indian Army, a sort of sergeant, I suppose you could say. Um, and that gentleman was himself at that point just two or three years away from retirement. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of money at home when you were 14 kids. 
His mother died when he was barely five, so he, 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 had, a, he had a challenging uh, childhood. But the, the, the kid, uh, you know, this insignificant Dalit child sort of, uh, can I get you to take a picture for me on my phone of all of this, by the way? I'm sorry, it just suddenly struck, struck me that yeah. my brother-in-law was doing yeoman duty in the other panel is not here today. Ladies, ladies and no, gentlemen, the, audience as well. the, 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 the TikTok generation right here. That's right. Uh, no, wait, TikTok is banned in India, so it's not going to go on TikTok. But it will make its way through Twitter and, and God knows what else. And I'll Listen, I, I, I can't be blamed for you being incriminated by being on stage with me. Thank you. Now, Saeed, uh, we were talking about... Uh, about, about Ambedkar's uh, childhood and being the 14th so he, he was So he had the stuff, the time his dad retired, moved away to another town. Um, his particular group of, of Dalits, the Mahars, were actually relatively better off by comparison with some of the other Dalit subcasts, because uh, not only were they, at one point, uh, even within the sort of Hindu fold, given certain specific responsibilities in the villages where they were, but the British actually pressed them into military service, and there was a Mahar regiment, which was quite significant. Uh, unfortunately, at one point, before Ambedkar reached uh, adulthood, the the en enlistment of, of Dalits in the British Indian Army stopped. And one of the things he wanted to do was to agitate for that as well to be resumed. Uh, but nonetheless, um, he was a very bright kid who was forced not to sit at a chair and desk like the other, cads, the other kids in his classroom, but on a gunny sack on the floor near the door, a gunny sack which he would have to bring and take away because nobody else would touch it. He recounts episodes, for example, of, of he, he went, he was very thirsty, the peon who opened the tap for all the kids wasn't to be seen, so he went and opened the tap for himself, and he got soundly thrashed for his pains because no Dalit was supposed to touch the tap that other upper-caste children were drinking from, that sort of thing. He also recounts you know, kinder treatment by a couple of Brahmin teachers and so on. But in any case, uh, he, had, he, he, he had a very, very rough time, and uh, when, when his mother died and his father was contemplating remarriage, he was also seriously wondering whether he should just run away from home and work as a laborer in the mills, which was the way uh, that many, many Dalits found themselves you know, looking for employment as, as laborers. Uh, fortunately, he stayed in school, uh, became the first person of his community to, to, to matriculate from uh, Elphinstone High School in Bombay, and then managed to get a scholarship to go to college. His father couldn't afford to see him through beyond one year of college, but he was able to do that. And uh, again, the circumstances of his further advancement in academia uh, are, are quite amazing. He would go and sit in a garden to read uh, during breaks in his school. And there was a professor from another college, a man called Keluska, who had the same habit. And Keluska noticed this young boy, you know, studiously reading, unlike others of his age who you know, busy having a good time whenever they could. And he started talking to this kid, was very impressed with him, took him under his wing, lent him a copy of a book he'd written on the Buddha, which was to have a lifelong impact on, on Ambedkar. And then he, he uh, he's a Brahmin himself, this professor, went to the Maharaja of Baroda, who had a reputation for encouraging uh, non-Brahmins to be educated, and talked him into giving Ambedkar a scholarship. So Ambedkar finished his college and then won another scholarship from the same Maharaja to go off to Columbia University. Uh, now this is at a time when many, many upper caste Indians would write BA, open brackets, F after their names. The F stood for failed because you know, the they could write BAF after their names because the fact that they'd got that far was impressive enough as a credential. But Ambedkar had not only got his BA, he went on uh, and did a PhD at Columbia, took in a ridiculous number of courses. I haven't reproduced all of that in the, in the book because I was very consciously writing a short biography, but uh, I uh, read the courses he took and it was amazing, the voraciousness of his intellectual appetite. Um, it was quite extraordinary. And he learned uh, and, and became the man he became. He was uh, an authority on, uh, on economics. Amartya Sen, India's only Nobel Prize winning economist, called him the father of his, of his economics. Um, he was an authority on the somewhat obscure subject of, of British provincial taxation in India and the somewhat less obscure and rather important subject of the Indian rupee, the currency manipulation by the British during the colonial era. Uh, and, you know, reminded me, I wonder whether he got the idea from the importance of being earnest when Nurse Prism, I think, or, or was it, well, maybe it was one of the lady dowager ladies in the play, uh, says, you know, you, you, you can talk about anything, but you can't talk about the Indian repeats, far too sensational. And that was precisely, this is a topic that Ambedkar delved into. He also wrote one of the first and presented one of the first papers on the origins and practice of caste. 
which made him, if you like, an amateur sociologist because he was in the sociology department, of which he was not a member. He was, he was in the economics department. He came under the influence of John Dewey, the philosopher uh, and, and, and thinker who, who, uh, uh, made, who had some very original contributions about the individual and society that had a profound impact on Ambedkar. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of this. I'm, 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 I'm taking too long to answer your, your question. He, he di went through all this, and he, anyway, he did. His, he had a bond from uh, the Maharaja of Baroda because he'd, after all, uh, been paid money to go and do this. He had to come back and work. So he came back and signed up uh, for the Baroda government. But then again, more humiliation was to follow. Uh, when he was at the office, the, the peons delivering files would toss them on his desk rather than hand them to him because they didn't want to be polluted with his touch. Uh, they would, they would um, <coughs> treat him with disdain, and his application for government accommodation kept getting transferred from official to official and not being acted upon. Uh, he was desperate because he had no place to stay. Uh, he went to um, uh, every conceivable option. No, nobody would take him because he was Dalit. And then he discovered a Parsi boarding house. And he'd had a Parsi roommate who became his lifelong best friend in, in Colombia. Uh, uh, and, and, and so he went to the Parsi boarding house and said, I realize I'm not eligible to stay here because I'm not Parsi, but if you don't mind conniving at the deception, I'll slip you a little bit under the table. Let me stay. And this uh, boarding house fellow put him in a storeroom uh, and said, okay, you can stay there, but don't tell anybody you're not a Parsi. And sure enough, within a few days, the deception was discovered and a whole bunch of hockey-wielding Parsis descended upon him and threw him out. And then you can imagine this man sitting in a park, he recounts this bitterly, in Baroda at night with all his papers and certificates strewn around him, weeping bitterly that all that he'd accomplished, and you know, he was already one of the most qualified people the Baroda government would ever have, and he, could, he couldn't even find a place to stay. So he resigned the next morning, took a train back to Bombay, and the struggle continued. Um, he had... He went back to England, uh, studied some more, got admitted uh, to, to, the, to the bar at Gray's Inn. Uh, I mean, his, his qualifications are quite extraordinary. Wrote another thesis at the, at the London School of Economics, which uh, again turned out to be fairly controversial. He then decided he was going to study in Germany, went off to the University of Bonn, but was summoned back to LSE because the professors wanted him to rewrite some of his more controversial assertions. It's all a very long and complicated, uh, everything was a struggle. Um, his wife, meanwhile, left behind in India, and he was, it was an arranged marriage to a very young girl. She was nine, and he was 16 or something when they married. Um, uh, five of their children uh, uh, were born. Three had to be, you know, uh, th three, three died very young, including Ambedkar's favorite, a uh, particularly bright little baby boy. So he, he went through all of these privations and horrors. But what was interesting was throughout all this, his intellectual um, rigor, hard work and production never ceased. And he was uh, in his 20s called upon to testify before one of the first British commissions inquiring into uh, the, what the conditions were in India. Uh, he became one of the people called upon to testify before the Simon Commission, many of you may have heard of that uh, commission that came in 1928 uh, to India to, um, to look at the possibility of extending progressive responsible government to Indians which is boycotted by the Congress party, and the famous slogan, Simon, go back. To this day, if Indians of a certain generation meet an Englishman called Simon, their instinct is to say, Simon, go back. You know, that, that was such a popular phrase. But Ambedkar did testify before Simon. And then, as I said, he got invited to come to the, uh, to the London Roundtable Conference to speak for his community. And one of his big messages to the British was that the Dalits needed to be able to represent themselves. So he advocated, for example, uh, reserve constituencies where Dalits would vote for Dalit candidates, so their own representatives would, have, would be their voice. And this was something that brought him into direct conflict with Mahatma Gandhi, who had already seen through the British policy of divide and rule, where they'd created separate electorates for Muslims to separate them from the Hindus, and he felt that any further such divisions would divide the Hindus as well, and it would just play into British hands. But this is where Ambedkar and Gandhi would never find a meeting of the minds. Because for Ambedkar, the, the lot that his people were suffering, the indignities, the humiliation, required uh, a different sort of position. And, and, and Gandhi uh, said, morally it is wrong, morally we must be united to throw out the British and we'll stay together. And there was a celebrated fast unto death that Mahatma Gandhi undertook. And finally, Ambedkar had to cave because the huge amount of moral pressure on him to save the Mahatma's life, that led to something called the Pune Pact, which to still, to this degree, is now the formula that exists. We have reserved seats 
for Dalits in Parliament, but they're voted for by the entire general electorate. And uh, that means that the Dalits who get elected are not necessarily the Dalits who are most beloved of the Dalit community, but the Dalits who are most acceptable to the overall electorate. And that's one of those issues that, that so this comes is, up. So this is a major theme, I mean, reading in the book, the notion of are the Dalits then seen outside or inside the architecture of Hinduism? Uh, it, it, it appears as though this is one of the central tensions that Ambedkar has with a lot of the, uh, the members of the independence movement establishment, particularly, as you rightly said, uh, Gandhi. Yeah, that was up to independence. When, when independence came and the constitution was to be drafted, uh, a party which was otherwise opposed to and to which he was opposed, the Congress, invited him to chair the drafting committee of the Constituent Assembly. And one of the provisions he wrote in was the abolition of untouchability, which Gandhi was also in favor of. But so that ends the question of whether they're outside the Hindu fold or not, because that whole idea is, uh, is irrelevant now that the, the phenomenon is not supposed to exist. Uh, but he also wrote in uh, what he intended to be a short-lived provision, the world's first and, and farthest reaching affirmative action program, uh, which basically guaranteed that it's not only opportunities but outcomes in the sense that they would have reserved seats for them in government jobs, in universities, in, in medical colleges, in new parliament as well, in the state assemblies. And that, I think, in many ways, he may not have expected it to last as long as it's done, but it's now become deeply entrenched in the Indian system and ensures that it's very difficult to practice the sort of old-fashioned discriminations that he endured. I mean, you know, how do you discriminate against somebody who's your boss at work? Uh, and, and, and people are, especially in government jobs and so on, finding that this, this happens. Uh, there have been some positive transformations over the years. Not enough, one might argue, uh, because a recent poll last year, I think, established that 23% of Indians still practice untouchability, which is a horrifyingly high number. Uh, but I think that's a reference to what you might call social untouchability. They don't dine with or, or marry or, or interconnect, that sort of thing. But uh, practicing untouchability as, as a practical proposition in daily life is now virtually impossible. You have no idea who you're rubbing shoulders with on the bus, for example. You know, the whole practice of untouchability goes back to uh, an, uh, an older era, especially in rural India, where everyone knew who everyone was, where they lived, what, what work they did, everything defined them. And, and that was already breaking down by the 20th century and in the 21st. It's, in my view, unsustainable, which is not to say there aren't atrocities against Dalits. There are. And I've talked about some of them in the, in the latter part of the book when we examine Ambedkar's legacy. So Ambedkar then, as you uh, uh, refer to him in the book, is the James Madison of the Indian Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, I mean, Madison has his own... Uh, revision and uh, new lenses by which he's perceived in the United States, especially regarding slavery and, and all that, which we don't need that to... That entire generation, unfortunately, had slaves. Exactly. So that became a sort of systemic thing. But you, but you, f you touch on this notion of constitutional morality. That was his uh, contribution. In fact, he, he did a number of things in his work on the Constitution. He, he was the man who reconciled the whole notion of giving individual agency to the Indian citizen and at the same time ensuring that the benefits... Uh, that communities as a whole had under the British could be safeguarded. The British had ruled India as a collection of communities. So the individual subject, as they were, as we all were in those days, since we have subjects of the crown, uh, had no agency. Uh, you know, your, your political role, and that too was gently eked out reforms in 1905, in 1919, eventually in 1935, which gradually gave a few more bits and pieces of, 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 uh, of political uh, authority to Indians. Uh, but even the last elections in British India, the 1946 elections just before partition, uh, those elections were in a country of 330 million people. And there were precisely 30 million people who were entitled to vote. You had to have property or a college degree or a certain level of education to be able to vote. And the British had created an India in which um, only 16% was literate and 8.8% and, uh, of Indian women were literate. So you, you had a, a terribly difficult um, kind of... Um, uh, critical mass of, of individuals, and the British could sort of say, you know, we can't possibly empower individuals in these circumstances. But the, the Ambedkar and the constitution makers said nothing doing. We will give everyone the vote, we will give everyone the right to determine their political future, and it was a tremendous experiment that he pulled off. So that was one thing. The other was the notion of constitutional morality. There's a letter of the law, and there's a moral ethos that is infused in the law. And that moral ethos for him 
involved not just equality, but this concept of fraternity, which he didn't just borrow from the French Revolution, but which he found in the Buddhist sanghas and so on, the, the early sense that all men are your brothers. And his problem was that, of course, uh, caste Hindus would not have considered Dalits to be their brothers. And therefore, uh, for him, injecting fraternity into the discourse was actually a rather, a rather valuable contribution, and a, an original one. Um, he also fought the Gandhians a number. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi had this vision of India uh, sort of centered on the villages and, and, and slightly perhaps romanticized ideal of these self-governing village republics that all come together to create India. And Ambedkar said, no, villages in India are sinkholes of iniquity and prejudice and, uh, and I will not uh, agree to this. And he, he preferred urbanization and industrialization, which also you know, to some degree is prescient on the urbanization front, but has not worn so well on the industrialization front. But that's, the, that's how he thought people would progress. Um, and, and so he resisted every attempt to, to romanticize the village or empower the village. But the result of that can also be negative, which is that a lot of grassroots democracy in India has to take place at the lowest levels. And if you don't empower the villagers with the right to elect their own representatives and then to, to give them enough funds to get the work done, in the local areas, you're constantly going to be um, uh, doing sort of top-down governance. And that was one of, I think, Ambedkar's flaws in his vision, because he was so anxious to fight back against the entrenched prejudices of the system, but he never quite thought far enough about how you needed to decentralize and empower the bottom. Well, I mean, he had this uh, internal conflict as well, I mean, particularly when it came to religion, to the point where he left Hinduism and uh, became a Buddhist. So he initially wanted to, to work within the Hindu fold and reform it. But his demand for reform was the annihilation of caste, his word. Uh, he said that essentially the, the caste system cannot be reconciled with anything that's decent uh, in, in sort of human values, uh, human morality, and, and the caste system had to be abolished. Whereas people like Mahatma Gandhi and, and many other Hindus said, no, the caste system is fine. What's wrong is discrimination. So we outlaw discrimination, but the caste system has been around for thousands of years. We're going to keep it. And Ambedkar would never agree with that. There was a celebrated debate between him and Gandhi in the pages of Gandhi's magazine uh, when Gandhi wrote in reaction to, um, to uh, Ambedkar's... Um, Ambedkar was to deliver a speech at a, at a, at a radical group called the Jod Pakht Todak Mandal in Punjab. And, and, and he wrote the speech called The Annihilation of Caste and sent it to them to be printed in advance to be given to the audience. And they were so horrified by the speech, they came back to him and begged him to make some changes. So he said instead he preferred not to give the speech at all, and he published the text of his lecture as, as, a, as a pamphlet or a book, and it, it, it's, it's subsequently gone into multiple editions in multiple languages and is still in print. Gandhiji then wrote a um, rejoinder in his magazine, which he called Harijan. And then Ambedkar wrote a reply to Gandhi. It's quite fascinating seeing these debates amongst them. And I must say, intellectually, it's difficult to argue that Gandhiji got the better of that argument. I think Ambedkar did. And he was ruthlessly logical. He said, you know, if caste is founded on profession, because uh, Gandhi is basically saying it's harmless, you know, it's people doing certain things. Uh, you know, that's, that's the origin. And it's, it's certainly true. It was founded on your, on your professions. Uh, what happened with the poor Dalits were the ones who had the unclean profession, so-called, you know, manual scavenging, cleaning toilets, uh, butchers, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but anyway, so, so he said, you know, why don't you practice what you preach? He said to Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi comes from merchant caste. He ought to have been sitting in a shop, you know, selling grain or whatever. And there he was instead leading the independence movement. So he said, where's the logic in your position? You have yourself gone beyond what your caste tells you you can do. Why, why can't, why, why should the rest of us not? So anyway, uh, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was quite a debate. Well, you, you point out that his, uh, his disagreement with Gandhi took on a, a rather ungracious tone. Mm -hmm. And you enumerate that as one of the four of Ambedkar's flaws. Yeah, I thought that he was unnecessarily ungracious uh, uh, about Gandhi in the sense that though the two of them disagreed, and I actually, as I said in the book, I think Ambedkar had the better of the arguments in many, many ways just on, on, on grounds of merit. The tone that Ambedkar adopted was unnecessarily churlish. And in fact, uh, Ambedkar, I mean, Gandhi would write to Ambedkar saying, tell me what I can do to win you over, kind of thing. 
and Ambedkar would sort of call him fairly abusive names. Well, in I fact, mean, he said uh, he showed me his fangs. Well, that was later. So, so, so he, he, in, I'm talking first in Gandhi's lifetime. He was quite. He published a book in 1945 called "What Gandhi and the Congress Have Done to the Untouchables." And the entire book was quite dismissive. And Louis Fisher, Gandhi, Gandhi's most famous biographer, came to India, met Ambedkar, and said, "My God, it's the bitterest man in India," or something like that. When Gandhi died. Ambedkar walked a little bit in the funeral procession and went to Billa House where he was killed, but never said a word, never wrote a word. He's a prolific man of words, um, but never said a thing and never issued a statement condoling the death. Uh, and then a few years later, started saying rather nasty things about Mahatma Gandhi that were not necessary. I mean, you, you know, the man is gone. Um, and of course, university revered, but Ambedkar didn't like the fact that he was university revered. And in 1953, he gave a BBC interview that was particularly unfortunate because it said things like, you know, others saw the Mahatma, I saw the man, he was like a snake, I saw his fangs. You know, I saw the bear man, he was like a snake, I saw his fangs. That, that sort of language, which, which it was neither warranted by the terms of their debate, nor I thought uh, worthy of Ambedkar, who, who had the mind and the intellect uh, to have looked upon this whole, whole disagreement with greater charity. But there was tremendous bitterness, I think, on his part about the fact that Gandhi had, Gandhiji had prevailed, as it were, in the public uh, estimate and all these things, and that he and Bedkar had, as he felt, been blackmailed into giving in on the Pune Pact that we talked about earlier. I mean, this reminds me of um, when, when uh, Gandhi died and uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah said uh, you know, he was one of the finest men produced by the Hindu uh, community. Uh, so, uh, so That was not particularly charitable, but at least he said finest. Yeah. <laughs> and Bedkar went the other way a lot. Well, according to the 2012 poll, I guess maybe it would be on Bedkar then, so who knows. Uh, you also said, though, that in more uh, broader terms, um, uh, the issues that you took with on Bedkar's uh, denigration of Hinduism. Well, it's not that. I, I just felt that um, Ambedkar knew more than he allowed for. I mean, he was so completely savage about Hinduism, the Hindu faith, and so on. He equated all of Hinduism to the caste system alone which is a travesty. I mean, he, he was an intelligent enough man to know what a travesty it was. Uh, but, and he would say really sweeping things like, you know, there might be a better or worse Hindu, but a good Hindu there cannot be. I mean, it would take a lashkar e member to come up with a line like that today. But I mean, uh, the fact is that that was the kind of language uh, that, he, that, he, that he sometimes wrote and said. Um, and he, I think, overlooked the, the extraordinary sort of greatness of both Hindu philosophical inquiry and interpretations of Hinduism was practiced by legions of people over the previous thousand years that were not about discrimination and caste and oppression, but were about all sorts of other things to do with the human connection uh, to the cosmos. And, and, and you know, he, he, d he could have read, uh, he may well have read uh, enough to acknowledge that. So he, he sort of reduced this extraordinarily uh, large, humane, wise faith into a practice that is not condoned by many of the scriptures, but is nonetheless sanctioned by many aspects of Hindu society. And the conflation of the one with the other, the, the social practices with the religion, I thought was unfortunate. Uh, and even within the religion, he overlooked many of the sages. I mean, uh, Adi Shankara, Swami Vivekananda, uh, even in many ways, Mahatma Gandhi was somebody who, who embodied the spirit of, of, of uh, of inclusiveness, which Ambedkar didn't enough acknowledge, I think. Well, it wouldn't be from lack of trying as far as reading. I mean, he had a personal library of 50,000 books. Books, that's right. Extraordinary. And in fact, he built his home so that the entire top floor was his library, and it had to be reinforced and so on, so it wouldn't collapse under the weight of his books. He also bought books when his family was starving, something which, which I must say, you know, one can reproach him for. And, and this, by the way, was in the days before Ikea, where you could go easily and buy bookshelves and <laughs> put them together yourself. Um, you also talked about the Adivasis earlier, um, yeah. and, and uh, you felt that his attitude toward them was uh, Yeah, was, he imbibed curiosity. This is a man of extremely original intellect and, and so on, but he, he was quite, uh, he had all the prejudices about the aboriginals that you would expect, you know, the sort of notion of them as primitive savages. And you could read some British colonial account of, say, African tribals or whatever, and it wouldn't sound very different from what the way Ambedkar spoke of the Adivasis. And it really was quite surprising that he would do that. Um, and in particular, since the Constituent Assembly in which he made his somewhat uncharitable remarks uh, was graced by an Adivasi representative who was an Oxford Blue. 
and who made a very powerful speech about basically give us uh, the chance to be like you kind of thing. Uh, so it, it was, again, surprising. But you're focusing on these, these few areas, and, and, and this is, I think, the fourth floor. We've talked about the uh, ungracious system of Mahatma Gandhi, the Adivasis, the, um, the, 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 the sort of unfairness of Hindu religion, and finally there is the, um, the, uh, the top-down. Uh, approach. Uh, he, he was very much um, a statist, a top-down plan. He wanted to nationalize everything and run it himself from Delhi kind of thing. Uh, not only did he not want to, to empower uh, the, the grassroots and the villages, because he felt that would only empower prejudice, but he also had an attitude towards um, economics and governance, which today one would feel is out of date. It's this you know, guy with a suit uh, and tie standing in Delhi telling the sort of great unwashed masses what was good for them. But here's, someone, that's but here's someone who was very cynical, I mean, it seems. Uh, that's a, I think that would be warranted to call him that. He was also skeptical of structures, I mean, Hinduism and, of course, the caste system that it had created, the stratification and the hierarchy. And yet, at the same time, he seems to put, if I may use the word, faith in the structure of state as being yeah. socially transformative. Yeah. I mean, partially, I think it's, um, when you think of his philosophical training with you and so on, the idea that the individual uh, has to be empowered, but at the same time, the individual functions within a society, and the society is upheld by a state. It was sort of very consistent uh, thinking. I mean, it was, uh, I think he went beyond Dewey, but it was still very much anchored in that vision. And so for him, the state was what was going to both protect society and, and shield, as well as give a platform to the individual within society. So all of those things uh, would, would have gone into his mind and the attitude that he had. But he was very much a statist. And I think one of his great disappointments, for example, was that he was passed over by Nehru for the leadership of the Planning Commission, which is one of those areas in which the two of them agreed, uh, that India needed to sort of plan its economic development. And of course, Ambedkar wanted to be the one who would do that and lead that effort. So where is Ambedkar now in the, uh, in the uh, positionality of India and in the positionality of Indians? So I think his, his greatness uh, lies in, in, in sort of the things we've already touched upon. Number one, his extraordinary constitu uh, constitutional contributions, the fact that he gave us uh, the India we live in uh, constitutionally and that, and, that, uh, and that ended the practice of untouchability, which is also the second thing, the social reform aspect. Uh, the third would probably be some of the ideas that he injected in, into the body politic, like fraternity, like constitutional morality, which is now cited routinely by judges all the time. Um, I mean, the phrase itself wasn't his, I think it was a, a, a German uh, legal theorist called Grutter, but, uh, but from there he sort of uh, developed it in a way that, that has really found resonance more in India than anywhere else. Um, all of those things are extraordinary contributions. But I think he's gained in stature also as a symbol, the most visible individual embodiment of, of a transformation that India, that most educated thinking Indians realize we were massively overdue for, and that was the empowerment uh, of the, of the uh, so-called untouchables. And that transformation uh, that he embodies, uh, plus, I would add, possibly the political cynicism of the fact that they represent 15% of the electorate in a first-past-the-post system that matters, uh, has meant that everyone is now uh, desperately trying to hail uh, Ambedkar's legacy in order to perhaps uh, not be seen on the wrong side of that particular community. Which, which seems ironic because he seems so against being uh, defined or his community being defined by others the kind of caste-splaining of Gandhi by calling him a Harijan and, uh, and, and, and his community. And now it seems as though Ambedkar is subject to that same kind of definition and everyone wants... Well, people are more, more, more careful than that, Said. I think you, yeah, they, they wouldn't quite put it so crudely. They'll simply talk about him as this, sorry, as this great figure. So but <laughs> they, they, they'll see him simply as this, this great unchallengeable figure. The curious thing is, of course, that he would have uh, not wanted to be worshipped the way he is. I mean, he, he, he really, I mean, I, one of his most cutting lines, uh, I can't remember if I put it in the book or not, because in writing a short book, you leave out almost as much as you actually include. He said that, you know, everywhere in India, you see statues of great men. Everywhere there are great men, everywhere there's great misery and poverty and wretchedness. And he said, uh, uh, let's deal with the poverty and wretchedness rather than exalting great men. I mean, he had this very strong, he, 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 he really had no patience. That's one of the reasons why he didn't want to exalt Gandhi. Um, but his, his sort of radical rejection of, of, of Hinduism and his own abandonment of the Hindu faith 
um, which he prefigured in the 1930s, in 36, and then he made a speech where he said, I was born a Hindu, but I will not die a Hindu. Though it took him 20 years to finally make a choice uh, and lead his followers and his family into Buddhism in 1956, a few months before he died. Um, that is that is not very much, shall we say, uh, talked about or applauded in today's uh, Hindutva-led India, where you've got, for example, a Dalit minister in the Delhi government recently had to resign for the sin of attending a ceremony where he simply repeated the statements of Ambedkar at the conversion ceremony, which were you know, uh, abjuring Hindu practices and embracing Buddhism. And that was seen as a massively anti-Hindu act. And his own party, who, which needs Hindu votes as well, asked him to resign as minister. So, you know, you, you can't, uh, you still have to walk on eggshells when it comes to some of the issues that Ambedkar took on so courageously at that time. But he was much more ecumenical in his critiques. I mean, he certainly did not uh, um, immunize uh, uh, Muslim uh, mm -hmm. society in India from the same lens of uh, scrutiny. Yeah, no, he was, he was, um, he was quite negative about, about um, the practice of Islam in India. He felt it was dominated essentially um, by the, the mullahs and by an elite, a very affluent landed elite. And that uh, they, they were. So he felt that, for example, when he, when, he was, when he made that statement, I will not die a Hindu, representatives of every faith turned and invited him to join them. So the Muslims, the Christians, the Sikhs, the Buddhists, everyone. And he, in his usual meticulous way, studied each faith and the practice of the faith in, in India to choose what would be the right one to do. And he rejected Islam for those reasons. And subsequently, when partition happened, he was so appalled by the mistreatment of the Dalits in Pakistan that he actually uh, called upon the government of India to facilitate Dalit migration to India, which is interesting. Uh, he also um, uh, wrote a very interesting book called Thoughts on Pakistan in 1940, uh, just after the, the, the Lahore Resolution, which had first talked about the idea of a separate state. And it was a most extraordinarily reasoned um, analysis of the idea of, you know, if Pakistan is created, who benefits, who loses, who gains. If Pakistan is not created, what would the consequences be? You know, what, what, what happens to the consequences for the rest of India, for the Muslims, for the non-Muslims? An extraordinary book, um, which on bo at bottom came out essentially with the position that if the Muslims are determined to create a separate country, it was better to let them have it than to oblige them to remain uh, uh, against their will, as it were. But he didn't, he also had a few rather uncharitable things to say about the Muslims. And today's Hindutva movement enjoys quoting some of those things um, in, in their appropriation of Ambedkar. Uh, they don't quote Ambedkar saying that the worst thing for this country would be Hindu Raj. Um, I cannot imagine anything worse, he said. But that, that, that they won't quote, but they would quote uh, some of his remarks on Muslims. Christians, of course, he, he, he had similar concerns. He felt that the caste system continued to be practiced in Christianity. And indeed, Dalit Christians even today are very conscious that they're both Dalit and Christian. Um, and of course, the association with the colonial power in his mind didn't help either. Um, so he went to Buddhism because he felt it was the most equal of the faiths uh, and this notion of fraternity that he found in Buddhism was very important to him. It's it fascinating. Um, uh, I also like the fact that he was uh, like I, and I apologize for this blasphemy, um, not really impressed by uh, Dilip Kumar. <laughs> yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. That, I, as I <laughs> confess, is, is a story that I had to tell, but there are multiple versions of it. Uh, Dilip Kumar, you know, who was a famous actor from what is today Pakistan, uh, uh, Yusuf Khan. Uh, Dilip Kumar found himself in Aurangabad at exactly the same time as Ambedkar and staying in the same hotel. Ambedkar had gone to establish a college there. And he knew that Ambedkar, in fact, it was well known that Ambedkar was looking for donations for the college. So Dilip Kumar said to people, I'm very happy to make a donation to the college. I'd like to meet the great man. Now, there are two versions of the story, but neither of them comes out very well. In one version, he meets the great man, starts talking, and basically cuts him, cuts him short rudely, uh, attacks the, the, the lack of morality of the film industry uh, and their dissolute lifestyles, and sends him packing with a flea in his ear and says, I don't want your money. And the second version of the story is he refuses to meet him altogether, saying, I don't want money from people like this because the film industry is, is poison, or more or less 
So either way, it doesn't come out very well for either man, I think, poor chap, uh, Dilip Kumar. But he was uh, the number one movie star in India at that time, and the prime minister was happy to be photographed with Dilip Kumar, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Ambedkar was not. Yeah, well, that's why I didn't get you to sign a copy of this for my mom, because <laughs> she would have objected. Uh, we have a roving mic, uh, so if anyone has questions, we have a question up here in the front, uh, so let's uh, get the ball rolling. We've got about 10 minutes for questions. And 12, I think. We have 12? Okay, excellent. And then uh, we've got a question in the back there, and then one in the front here, and then one over there. So, okay, please. Yeah, um, thank you, Dr. Tharoor. It was really, um, I would say, impeccably fascinating to listen to you, as always. Um, and this was really an engaging uh, conversation. Um, I, I'm, as I said, I'm uh, researching on um, Indian political writing. So what really struck me was... Um, you wrote Why I'm a Hindu in 2018, which was a time when India was at the crossroads of uh, rising fascism or Hindutva forces, whichever you would put it. And I'm not quite saying that um, your position on Hindutva or your position on Hinduism is quite similar to Ambedkar, like you have different views from what Ambedkar has written. So what is your um, motivation or inspiration behind writing this book at this juncture, looking, uh, you know, keeping in mind the kind of political scenario landscape that is going on in India. Well, yeah, simply, it was you. an attempt to sort of take my faith back from the Hindutva warriors, uh, who I believe were distorting what Hinduism was all about. Um, and and uh, the book is an explication, in I hope reasonably comprehensible terms, of the essence of Hindu philosophy and wisdom as as practiced and taught. Uh, for a couple of millennia, uh, and, and, and explaining through the lens of thinkers like Swami Vivekananda and Adi Shankar and a few others um, what this faith is all about and how, unfortunately, Hindutva has reduced the soaring majesty of this extraordinary faith, of this extraordinary philosophy, way of life, call it what you will, to the sort of team identity of the British football hooligan. Uh, it's, it's going around essentially saying, if you don't belong to my team, I'm going to hit you on the head with my placard right now. I'm mean, exactly as a football hooligan might. Uh, and that's not what Hinduism is all about. Hinduism actually says that all ways of worship are equally valid. All ways of imagining the divine are equally valid. All ways of, of, of reaching out to the divine consciousness are equally valid. So where do you get this kind of narrow-minded bigotry from is my question. So it was, a, it was an explication of the Hinduism that I'd grown up with and I'd read and believed and, and practiced and, uh, and thereby uh, a counter to the rather bigoted version of the faith that was gaining popular, um, uh, shall we say, acceptance uh, with the rise of Hindutva. I can't say that it succeeded beyond its readers, but at least it has been read by a few people. It's doing, still being read. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you for your fascinating insights into the... Uh, thank the you, Just, uh, uh, I limit myself to just one question for the present, and that is, um, you have spoken a lot about each political party trying to quote his name presently. I'm, I'm sorry, could you hold the mic a little closer? Okay. You have said that each political party at the moment in India is trying to quote his name. Yeah. Now, um, what in your view, on your, in your view, are the reasons... What, what are the reasons, reasons for why each political party is making? Yeah, I, I, as I said, partly it's the cynical business of you know 15% of the votes. No one wants to be on the wrong side of such a large vote block. So that's one of the reasons why all the political parties uh, are doing that. Um, there's also a sort of circumstantial thing, which is the political party that was founded in the 1990s by Dalit leaders, for Dalit leaders, of Dalit leaders, the BSP, has foundered in recent years. Um, and, and uh, has lost much of its appeal even to the Dalit voters. And so suddenly Dalit votes are up for grabs by other parties in a way that at some point in the second half of the 90s and the first decade of the century would not have been the case. So they've suddenly again uh, decided this is a great time to show they're on the right side of the Dalit cause. But the other factor is that India genuinely has evolved beyond it. I mean, that uh, it's now too embarrassing to admit discrimination. I was surprised by that poll that claimed 23%. I don't know how large their sample was and whether it was and where it was asked and so on, because by and large, you don't find Indians quite willing to admit uh, that kind of prejudice and bias anymore. So um, it's partially that because India's evolved, uh, they're quite happy to support um, a reformer, a social reformer, 
uh, like Ambedkar. Uh, it's partially, of course, the hailing of the constitutional virtues of Ambedkar. In the case of the BJP, it's also partially looking for non-Congress figures from, the, from that period to, to hitch their wagon to because um, uh, you know, all the, the leaders who were hailed in Independence India uh, were people associated with the Congress Party, which the BJP is a repudiation of. So you get all of these different reasons and factors coming. But above all, because the luster of the man's name and image is such that being associated with him or appropriating him makes you look good too and might, might get you some of those 15% of the votes. Do you think that there is a little bit of a change of heart and we have as a uh, society moved on and yeah. we have actually de facto ac you know, accepted? A little bit. It's not 100%, as I said, but I think there is, there is a lot of movement away from that. A lot of movement away from that. Up here in the front. Uh, Gentleman with the sunglasses, yes. Thank you, thank you, Shashiji. Really nice. Just a personal question. I'm following you uh, on your books and your speeches, and might not agree with all of it. But how you keep on top of all all your activities and then read so much? It's just for the kids, because I think uh, a lot of new generation kids are not reading that much. So please. I don't sleep enough. I'm afraid I can't recommend that to your kids. I, I hope they do. Um, no, look, I, I do worry about the reading habits of the younger generation. There's no doubt about the fact that in India, certainly too many of the, the kids who are at school today associate books only with schoolwork and homework. And, and no one uh, has inculcated in them the idea that you read books for pleasure, for diversion. And I keep trying to urge people to do that. So it's a struggle, and I hope you will persuade your kids. But don't try and be too directive. Don't only get them to read the good books and the classics. Let them read anything they like. It's the habit you want to inculcate, and once they get into the habit of reading, they graduate to more challenging things. He's being too modest. Uh, the secret is he reads his own stuff. Uh, <laughs> Can I just say, there's, there's loads of people that want to ask questions, but we are really running out of time. So this okay. is going to be the last, last one in okay. this room that the um, two panelists here will be signing books afterwards. So please do continue this conversation I'm, I'm not afterwards. signing anything. That's just shushy. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Hello, sir. I'm Rasan Binan, sir, and I'm from India. So uh, there was this con a conversation about reservation um, based on the social practices that prevailed during that time. Now, as times passed, we still have reservations for SESC, especially in the education sector. So I mean, you're a well-learned man, so I wanted your opinion, because there are various rounds of discussion on reservation based on either the financials or because there are a lot of complaints, there are, there are a lot of uh, discussions that happen where people feel that the reservation is causing them, you know. Sorry, what's the word you're using? Are you using reservation. Reservation? Reservation in education. Reservation. Yeah. I'm so sorry, I couldn't hear you clearly. That's all right, that's My all right. Apologies. So right now there are various rounds of discussion regarding that. Uh, that is where uh, a lot of students feel that they're missing out the opportunity because of the reservation. A lot of them feel that the reservation should be strictly based on the econ like the financial status, so I just wanted to know what you felt about yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's all got very complicated, but let me say first of all that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the American subway system. They, they have these two rails on which the trains run, and there's a third rail right in the middle which carries the electricity that powers the trains. If you touch the third rail, you're electrocuted immediately. That's the end of you. And that's essentially what the reservation debate is to an Indian politician. It's the third rail of Indian politics. You touch it, you're done for. But I will say there are the, the point you raise about the financial angle has been taken into account by the Supreme Court in some rulings. That is that uh, there was a complaint that reservations were being benefited from by an elite within each society. So, you know, somebody gets into the government service and becomes a high officer because of reservation, and then his kids, who haven't had any of the privations that he had, they will also get the same advantages, etc. And then the Supreme Court came up with a slightly oddly phrased concept of the creamy layer. And the creamy layer of each, each class of reservation uh, would not be eligible. So it was usually in terms of a certain level of salary, if you're earning more than X, uh, then you were deemed to be in the creamy layer and could not benefit from reservation. Uh, in practice, however, uh, this debate is going to go on. It'll be voiced all over the place, but I can assure you that I do not know a politician in India who would have the courage to vote to end reservations. It's simply, uh, like the sort of the, the cons consensus around Ambedkar, there's a consensus around reservations. It's, and as you know, it's been extended now to the so-called other backward classes, the OBCs. So now, in many, many places, in government, in national government service, 
uh, of every opportunity is now reserved for either the scheduled castes, the scheduled tribes, or the OBCs. In many states, it's well above 50%, because the states have gone ahead, and so far, the Supreme Court hasn't told them they can't. So in some states, it's 69%, some states 75 uh, there is a claim that in one particular state that 90% of all jobs are reserved. Now, that can be very frustrating for the so-called general uh, category of people. But don't forget this is only in government, uh, government jobs and government uh, opportunities. The private sector is still open to, to these elites. And so there is a little um, um, unfairness to the debate as well because we're living in an era in which the number of opportunities in government are shrinking anyway. Uh, so it's not as if this alone ends career prospect for somebody who has the misfortune to be born in an upper caste. But that, that last comment was not entirely tongue-in-cheek. There are actually Brahmins in Tamil Nadu famously were getting forged caste certificates showing themselves to be Dalits. I mean, for 3,000 years, the opposite might have been likely. But now you're finding uh, elites trying to show desperately that they're, that they're backward or, or, or underprivileged. And that, too, is a sign of how society has changed and evolved uh, since Ambedkar's time. You're not saying that they're putting on their on their card Brahman parentheses failed. Right? <laughs> well done, Say. That's okay. a good one. <laughs> Please join me in thanking, as always, Shashi Tarur. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others, and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.